people don't expect you to be perfect. I mean, this not just as individuals, but as businesses, you know, I don't think anyone expects my railway to be on time every single day. But when it's not, all they ask for is good information, support and compassion and empathy. Welcome to Perspectives from the Top. I'm Chris Roebuck, global keynote speaker with unique leadership experience from military, business and government, best-selling author and your guide to greater success. Together, we'll discover powerful insights from the world's leading thinkers, doers and trailblazers, the must-know trends, thought-provoking revelations and practical actions you can use immediately. This is your exclusive and personal shop of insight and inspiration to help you get to the top. Welcome to you and all of our perspectives from the top community around the world, which is growing all the time, according to the rankings. It's great to share the insights of such successful people with you to help you get to where you want to be. Today, we have a guest who started her career as a customer services assistant on the Heathrow Express, the high-speed line from London to Heathrow Airport, where she became a train driver, then moved through a series of roles in the male-dominated rail industry, ending up in the C-suite as an operations and safety director. She then entered the very different world of bus transport, but not just any bus network, just running the network for all of London, some 11,000 buses and 2.1 million passengers a day, some of it during COVID. In 2020, she became CEO of Southwest Trains, covering both long distance and commuter routes into London with over 200 million plus journeys a year. So it's my great pleasure to welcome the amazing Claire Mann to Perspectives from the Top. Claire, good to see you and welcome from all our perspectives from the top listeners around the world. Uh, thank you for your time in terms of joining us and we're looking forward to hearing your insights. Uh, starting off, one of the things that our listeners like to hear about is we find that somewhere in someone's past, there has been an inspiration that helped them get to where they are, be that a friend, a mentor uh, or, or whatever. Did you have somebody like that who sort of initiated your journey? And what did they do to get you going in the direction you've been so successful in? Hi, Chris. It's an absolute delight to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Um, I was thinking about this a few times in the last year because actually I'm going to say my father. Now, often people think about somebody famous, somebody with high profile. My father had me when he was 46, so quite late in life. And um, he and his ethos was it was about everybody is kind and you look after everybody and everybody is at the center of your focus. And, you're, and as far as he was concerned, you could do no wrong by people unless they did wrong by you. And he had a very open personality. He was very um, open to all different um, cultures, different backgrounds. And for somebody who was an older father amongst my, my friends who had younger dads who were a bit more trendy, my dad was far more worldly wise than anyone else. 
And very early on, he just said to me, you, you be good and kind and you go for it, girl. You can do whatever you want to do. And I lived in Dorset in the middle of nowhere in a tiny village. And I didn't know much about life until I went to, to Polytechnic in Portsmouth. And when I met new people and new experiences, my dad was always there telling me, you, you know, as long as you're, you stick to your values and you stick to your beliefs, you'll, you'll be fine in life. And through my career, I've met many people, many women in senior roles who feel like they have to be aggressive or challenging to really make their point and their stand. And I've just been myself. And whenever I talk about this, I'm passionate because I know I have never compromised my values in any role I've done. So I think from a inspiration perspective, for me, it's about being comfortable in yourself and just and going for it. So that's from a personal perspective. Um, from a business perspective, in the last few years, I've had the pleasure of becoming um, a close friend of Peter Hendy, who is chairman of Network Rail and obviously um, commissioner of transport for London. And somebody with the passion, the drive and the absolute focus on doing the right thing for transport and, and other areas, especially in London, but really, really absolutely solid, reliable, somebody that you can talk to, somebody that can give you um, ideas and, um, and sort of ways forward. He inspires me because he keeps going. He does so much for people all the time across the industry, but he's someone that people can rely upon to give some sound advice. And I think sometimes you just need that, that rock, that stable person that just tells you as it is. And I like straight talking as well. That's, that's two, two great examples. And, and, and I think that, well, the beauty, the beauty of it is, is uh, as you said, it, it's your father who gives you the underlying sort of set of principles by which to, to live your life and, and gives his example to do that. Um, and that just that simple message of, you know, if you do good things for others, they will do good things for you, uh, is just so powerful. And 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 lots of other speakers that uh, that are guests that have come on here have have said the same. Um, and that, that's actually basically hardwired into us as human beings, in that we positively respond to people who positively respond to us through the neuroscience. And and Peter Hendy also, it, it, it's. When, when you are, and I would say this to all, all listeners, that, you know, if there is somebody who is a rock like Claire had with, uh, uh, with Hendy, you know, that, that you can have as a mentor or a friend or whatever, that is, that is just so powerful going forwards. Linked to your point about the, you know, giving and you finding people give back, What's your perspective then on how important that is in, in relation to the sort of actions that leaders take on a day-to-day -day basis, be it focusing on the task or focusing on the people that gets the best from people, given what sort of Peter said and what you've experienced? I think for me, people need clear direction. They need to have honest feedback. They need to be given the support to do what they do. And it all sounds very straightforward, but... For me, it's about the human element again. You know, I get off a train, I walk up the platform, I always stop and speak to every member of my team and see how they're doing. Now, we've just been through a pandemic where people have lost loved ones and friends. And we cannot underestimate that day in, day out, people are on the front line delivering a service who have been through a challenging time. So for me, 
if we share vulnerability as leaders and we disclose how we're feeling and we talk about our lives and we ask others about theirs, you break down the barrier, which is the process and the task, and you get to the person, you then get absolutely commitment, dedication, and you need to give them support. You can't just do that and then let them go. They need to know where they're going. So for me, it's not about being a soft, peopley, fluffy person. I think when I first started out in my career, Claire's a bit fluffy. Well, no, I'm not actually. If I give you some support, and I give you the direction and you decide that you don't want to be part of that, we'll have a conversation and then you'll leave. But I'm not going to, we won't mess about. We'll be honest with each other. So I think honesty, I think clarity, vision, but also support is what you need to get the best out of people. Yeah, it, it also, I think, links to that environment that you're creating inevitably builds trust because people see that you genuinely care about them as as people and and professionals and the, you know the fundamental point is that if people think that you care about them they will they will reciprocate and it doesn't matter whether that's people around the boardroom table or you know in your case a cleaner on on a station platform and funnily enough as we discussed earlier exactly the same thing applies when there is an interaction between you and customers or passengers or your staff and, and the same. So that interesting interaction element is a key part of what you're trying to get your people to do with your customers as well. Absolutely. And you need to lead by example. You know, as far as I'm concerned, there are no levels in my organization. We have a managing director, we have directors, we have people that are keeping those trains clean that have been doing that throughout the COVID period. Without them, we wouldn't have been running any services. So let's be clear. It is about turning the pyramid on its head. It is about supporting the big frontline teams that are doing the job for you. And you can only support them if you listen to them and if you actually, you know, respect and respond to what they need in a way that is timely, measured, but honest. So I think for me, um, the customer requires that engagement. If we don't give that engagement and have that engagement with our people, their customer won't receive it. It, it. it all seems so straightforward, but I'm amazed every time I start a new job, how many people I work with that just don't get it. They think you set the KBR, KPIs, you set the targets, you set the objectives, you send people out and they're just going to do it for you. Well, they're not. They really are not. They need to understand why they're doing it. They need to understand what benefit is there in this and, and how do I know I've done a good job and I don't think we're always as good in frontline service industries of telling people when they've done a good job so that's another area I really focus on with my team you're absolutely right and it's this isn't just a transport issue I, I I'm convinced that this is an issue with 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 leadership everywhere that the perspective that if you issue a set of objectives KPIs or whatever it, it will just magically happen because the people out there are motivated, as motivated as you are as a member of the board. Um, well, not quite because, one, they're probably not getting paid as much as you. Two, they probably don't have the share options that you have. Um, and three, therefore, you know why you're doing it. But if you just tell them to do it, they don't know why they're doing it. And to your point, it doesn't answer the what's in it for me question. And it's the really beautiful little points that you know the 
asking people for their ideas, asking people for their thoughts. And everybody says, oh, well, that's not that's insignificant. But the research data shows even the act of just asking your people for their ideas can get up to 35% more effort because you show that you're interested in them, even if they don't have a good idea. And, and I think that's that's the power of the simp- those simple little actions that you alluded to on a day-to-day basis that make people want to give their best. Sort of flipping up to the strategic level, you, you led the London um, bus system with over 11,000 buses, um, what, two and a half million daily journeys. But what was interesting was that you were in the public sector running it but the service was delivered by what was it 10 11 private businesses so how did you manage to make that service run smoothly across all of london given that these people didn't actually report to you they weren't actually in the same organization and their objectives were profit driven commercial objectives whereas your objectives were sort of public interest, um, societal objectives. How did you make that work? Well, it's interesting because my background was the railway. So joining TfL and then going into the public sector and managing bus contracts was a completely different area for me. So in the contracts, there's so much you can do with the requirements of the customer experience, standards, etc., But it doesn't get to the root and the heart of the issue, which is how the people are treated, how they feel about their job and how they give of their best, which is back to the point that if they're treated well, they give the best customer experience. So for me, it was a a real eye opener to understand that where you've got 10 different companies bidding for the same work within London, so all in competition with each other, they're never going to sit in a room with you, the MDs who have been in these jobs for many years. Lots of them have been in the industry since they came out of school or university. They're not going to sit together and openly share the best way of doing this. They're not going to share that with me, I found. So it was all about, once again, getting to know the business, getting to know their challenges, building the relationship with the executive team of those businesses and really setting out why as Transport for London, we wanted to take the bus forward. Now, when I joined um, TFL, I felt like the bus part of the business was so like... Sorry, if I just dive in, Claire. TFL, for our listeners, is Transport for London, which is the public uh, sector body that runs all of transport in London. Sorry, Claire. No, that's... Sorry, I, sh- I should have said that... In Transport for London, London Underground is a big part of the network and clearly that's what people identify. But the London bus network, as you say, is huge. It touches everybody in London in terms of being within 200 metres of a bus stop. So it's such an important service. How I felt about it was that it had almost been stuck in the corner like the, the film Dirty Dancing years ago, don't put baby in the corner bring her out. And that's how I felt about buses. It was all about the big tube network. The bus network delivers to every type of individual, to every location, and it's accessible. So what I was trying to do through the operators is say to them, we are more important than ever, especially through the COVID period, to bring people back moving in London, which was affordable and accessible. So I need you to work with me. I need to understand your business. But at the end of the day, we have to start working together on the outcomes. So I'm not saying that 
the MDs of 10 bus companies sat together and shared notes on how they were going to be better at customer service. But when it came to delivering a better safety record and a safer bus network, we all had a common purpose. It didn't matter if you were in competition. It's about life and death. And I think that really focused the attention. So in terms of how you go about it, for me, back to people again, it's back to understanding motives, setting out the rationale as to why we needed to do it, but also just understanding that we all had a common purpose, which was to keep people safe and continue to to grow the the network in London. So, So that, for me, over two to three years, I suddenly saw that coming together and it was a beautiful sight to see these sort of MDs of bus companies talking about the same issue and sharing ideas. It was amazing. It's, I often say, one, you know, for many years, I've just coined the phrase, it's about we, not me. And if you can create that ethos, either in the situation of stakeholders or obviously in the situation of uh, team members, uh, colleagues within an organization, we, not me, works better. And you certainly had an achievement there to get hard-nosed commercial bus operators to sit down and actually talk to each other. But it also goes to, to, to what many people have said. Example, Peter Mara, the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, he said when they're negotiating between conflicting parties you know, in a, a war environment, it's a win-win. You have to go for a win-win. If you can create a win-win, it actually gets people together. And that's, that must have been what you were doing in terms of the commercial mindset saying, It should be, to some degree, a win-lose, but you created it as a win-win. I think, you know, the challenges of funding have been very obvious to anyone in the UK when it comes to Transport for London, the transport industry, and obviously since COVID, even tougher. And at the end of the day, if we all pull together to deliver the best service and more people want to use it, we can continue to grow. That was the common purpose for for those individuals. Yes, they were competing for that work together, but the work wouldn't be there if we didn't focus in on the task at hand. So I think being blunt about it, you know, if our bus drivers are not going to smile at anyone or good, give good customer service, people might not choose to use the service. And we, it was as simple as that. But, you know, it, a challenging few months, years to get to a point where I felt like I had, I'd got to there. Um, but I'm hoping, I mean, I, I've, I've been out of the role now for a few months, that that has continued since, and I'm sure it has. Yeah, it, it's it's that situation where you try and get across to people. Let's not argue about how we actually chop up this small cake between us. Let's just make the cake bigger for all of us. Yes, exactly. Exactly your point. Exactly. (laughs) So feeding on from London buses, then, you know, you're now leading one of the biggest train companies in UK, uh, over 200 million journeys a year. Um, if If you look at this and the other roles you've held where you're shifting a large volume of passengers, where getting that done is important, but also safety is critical. So... You and your frontline staff in such a complex, fast-moving and intense environment have some fairly large leadership challenges. Can you give us some insight into into some of those that perhaps uh, those of our listeners who work in a a sort of an office or corporate environment might not be be familiar with? Yes. I mean, 
I often come across the view that you cannot do safety and reliability or performance at the same time. So, you know, some frontline people may say, well, if you want me to get this train to leave on time, I can't be doing all these things. Well, fundamentally, our customers require it to be a safe place and a secure place. They don't expect to know about that or hear about that. That just happens. What they're asking for is something that is reliable and good customer service. So if you start with a baseline that you recruit the right people and they understand the importance of safety as a bedrock to everything you do and they do things well and they're professional, everything comes together. The challenge we've got when you're running an operational business which, which has external factors that affect your ability to do that as well as you wish is that when a customer arrives and they start boarding trains, there are incidents, there is antisocial behavior, there are weather events, there are lots of things that can impact your ability to do what you set out to do that morning. So having people that can be flexible, that can be calm, but that also understand that people don't expect you to be perfect. I mean, this not just as individuals, but as businesses, you know, I don't think anyone expects my railway to be on time every single day. But when it's not, all they ask for is good information, support, and compassion and empathy. If they get that, it's fine. If they don't, it's really not acceptable. And I think what I'm trying to engender into my team is it will go wrong. We'll never stop things going wrong. We can try various things to make things better, but you're never going to know what's around the corner. If you join a frontline business, you need to understand that there are things that can knock you off course. The head office groups within my team need to understand their job is to support those people every day, be there with the systems, be there with the support and guidance and HR support when things go wrong, be there to comfort them. So I think it's about really thinking about as a customer, when I travel on a train or as a customer, when I go into a shop, if I don't get the best service, as long as it's dealt with well, I can forgive it. And I think we need to be really focused on the fact that you can soften the blow if you get the second part right. But what I would say is since COVID, um, we used to on our railway network probably just expect people to use us every day, whether we're late or not. You'll just have to wait till the train comes. Well, I'm sorry. Our customers have choices now. We're fighting for them. They can work from home. They don't have to get on that train anymore. So actually, the importance of professionalism and the best service has never been higher. And as an industry, we need to realize that it's not what it was a year and a half ago. So things have changed fundamentally. It's interesting you 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 mentioned the sort of um, uh, the, the attitude to customers uh, and the fact that if things do go wrong, they understand that you're human. And I think that's an interesting point about leaders in that when a leader sort of implies that they're perfect, they've never made a mistake in their lives, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to some degree, that is insulting the intelligence of other people because they know full well that you've made mistakes. Uh, and it's, it's an acceptance that we've all made mistakes and we all will make mistakes. But as long as we did the best we could in, in the situation, and particularly if those those problems are caused by things completely outside our control in the context of what you do, you know, the weather, mechanical breakdowns and all of that. You mentioned COVID and it's interesting that some organizations have, uh, I, I've written some articles on the responses to COVID and 
what seemed to happen in the first phase of COVID was that actually COVID triggered off a heroic response in in many organizations of everybody pulling together and a significant cutting through of bureaucracy is that to just to get just to get it done. Did you find that as well? Absolutely. So at the time that lockdown happened, I was working in Transport for London running the bus network. And I think the first thing to say is we did not know from day to day what to do, what was going to happen next. And it was all about finding your feet. So we had to make quick decisions. That's not normal in the transport sector. We had to very quickly come to some conclusions and also pull people together to do some things very quickly pull in resource resources um, and make sure that we could um, adapt the physical design of the bus to protect our drivers. We could adapt the timetables and we did it quickly and it just happened. And we suddenly realized that working off of Teams and Zoom and just having really quick fire discussions and decisions really evolved us in a very short space of time. If we could only bottle that forever, it would be fantastic. The challenge I think we now have is we are using Zoom teams and we're working from home and we're we're back to meetings again. I think it's very easy for the industry to slip back into not making decisions because we're not under that life and death pressure. I mean, if I'm honest with you, on, on the bus network, we lost 60 bus drivers through COVID in that first summer. And to receive a call to say, another driver has passed away at this garage, at this garage. It was so hard to know what we were going to do next that you suddenly pull it all out and you have to make some decisions. Now, some of them won't have been the right ones, but at the time we did what we could. And I think on review and reflection of the activity that we did at that time, we did a really good job. And I think we all look at each other now in a different light as individuals that were part of that. And there's a respect for the fact that it brought us closer. I mean, COVID has made people open up about their personal situations. Mental health has become really, really important now. That has really helped soften, I, I would say, business. We've softened. We've become more forgiving. The, the work-life um, balance issue has been addressed better. My fear is we could end up flipping too much the other way, where people are scared to challenge again and get back to business. And I think it's a very delicate path you need to tread, but we've got to start taking those steps now as we come out the other end of this. I think at this point, you know, having, as listeners may recall, I, I have spent I spent time in London Underground, so I under, understand the ethos of the public service worker, as Andy Byford, Transport Commissioner for London, said, and I know full well, and you know from southwest etc and the buses that if there is a problem on the network these people will come in on their day off unpaid to help the network get over what the issue is and in terms of covid um for all our listeners out there who are in jobs where they had the privilege of working from home when covid hit please just spare a thought for those people that claire was talking about who could not work from home because they had to drive the train or drive the bus that got everybody else to work, which put them in danger and sadly meant that in terms of percentages, a massively higher percentage of transport workers uh, were either ill 
or sadly passed away due to COVID than most other sectors. So that, that's just a, a thought I would ask people to think about when you take your journey to work, the sacrifice that those people have given to your communities through COVID. And yes, as Andy Byford said, I want people to have un, to have forgettable journeys so they don't remember going to work. But please, at some point, just don't forget those people. Linking into the practicalities of getting this stuff done, Claire, it's interesting to me talking to leaders around the world about where they find they have lack of capability, that people are focusing and organizations are focusing in on the really, you know, the really interesting stuff like strategic change or um, uh, those sort of things. But there's evidence that I've seen that there's some really basic leadership skills that are missing like delegation that people haven't been trained in. Just to give you an example, when I'm speaking, every audience of leaders I speak to around the world, I ask, how many of you in this audience have ever been taught how to delegate effectively? And never, never more than 25% of the hands go up. And I think, well, these people are supposed to be delegating every day but no one's taught them how to do it. So do you think there is a risk in organizations not putting those basics into place and then hoping that the strategy will be delivered through leaders who've never been to taught how to delegate? Absolutely. I think the challenge we've got personally, this is my reflection on my um, career, is often you get promoted into a role and off you go. You know what you need to do. You've watched someone else do it. So you, you follow the same, the same lines. And all you're doing is repeating the poor things that have happened before. Then a light bulb goes off where you suddenly realize that actually this isn't really working for me. And I didn't think it would be this difficult. And you start to find your own way to, to deal with things. And I think what we need to get back to, as you say, is back to basics. You know, it's all very well having change managers or people in your team looking at, you know, the future strategy. But if, the leadership is inappropriate or the leadership is inadequate, you're never going to deliver on your strategies anyway. And I think what we often lack in, um, in industry is where the lower level supervisory and management people sit. They often never get enough support to be able to manage upwards and manage downwards. They just are a layer that has to receive it all, absorb it, and work it through. And often they can be quite difficult to take on a journey. We might put a lot of effort into supporting the front line. We might put a lot of effort into executive leadership training and development. But if we don't cascade that through the structure and we don't set those, um, those training and development targets throughout, you're not going to get the benefits. So I think delegation is an issue whereby people think they're doing it appropriately then a project or something comes up and surprises you out of nowhere and you realize that actually it's not being managed as you thought it had because you've not done that task properly. And then everyone piles in. And then from top to bottom, you've got your, your MD, your CEO dealing with the detail of an issue. And it's a real risk. And if we don't stop, pause, step back and recruit the right people and develop them to be good leaders, we will not achieve our objectives. And I think there are good people that just need a little bit of support. And there are lots of people who have just gone up through the ranks because they're the technical expert. They've never had those skills and they can actually be quite damaging to the future of the business. So I absolutely agree with you that the basics are where businesses really need to focus 
Yeah. I, I mean, I would say to all, all, all listeners, you know, think about when I say the, the, the basics, what do I mean? I mean, prioritization. Are you doing work that enables the organization to deliver what it needs to deliver? Uh, uh, time management. Are you able to deliver stuff on time? Delegation. Are you able to delegate the right work to the right person? Communication. Are you able to explain why they need to do it and the big picture? And finally, giving feedback. Are you able to give feedback? And I would say to every listener, ask yourself whether you are confident in doing each of those. And people might say, oh, well, that isn't terribly important. But it is, because if you can't do those things, you are going to have difficulty, as Claire said, about getting stuff done. If you can't get the stuff done, you're going to be focusing on the task all the time. If you focus on the task all the time, unsurprisingly, you're not going to be focusing on people. If you don't focus on your people at all, they will draw the conclusion that you're more interested in the task than them. And you don't ask them for their ideas. You don't show you care. You just focus on the task. And their attitude then becomes, well, if that person is more interested in the task than me, why should I give my best? Um, <clears throat> and, and I think it's helping leaders understand that there is an impact on purely focusing on the task. And actually, the secret is to inspire the people and delegate to them where appropriately, which inspires them even more to get the task done and more than the task done. Have you seen that happen in, in your experience with leaders who do that? I have. And I think that the leader that is scared to delegate because they want control is the leader that will never develop a team or a succession plan. The leader that will always feel like they're under scrutiny and is quite defensive. And I think when you just accept that people will make mistakes and they're not going to get it right, and that's okay, and once they've done it a couple of times and you've supported them and then they get it right because they learn, it just opens up a whole new avenue of excitement because that individual's empowered, they take things on that you don't even know need doing, and all of a sudden they are coming up with initiatives and innovation. I think that we can often create superhuman jobs we decide this is the role, we create a job description and a sort of profile, we then go and recruit someone, we put them in it, and then you look at it and think, that's not humanly possible. Why did we do that to somebody? Why did we put someone in a position where you're not giving them the bandwidth and the ability to really do their best in that role? I think it's a mistake businesses make when they go through transformation, they reduce their size, they start piling work into one individual to sort of shrink down numbers and it just breaks them and we've got to just keep checking it and saying is that possible if not that's not the role and I do think that that's something in the last couple of years I've learned a lot about in transport for London we had to reduce numbers we're now um, looking at that within southwestern railway there's a change in, across the transport industry in terms of efficiencies but when making those decisions the people that are left have they got the support have they got the time resource and the skills because otherwise it's going to come in on us and I think it's something that really needs to be to be thought through in this day and age especially now we understand the impact of mental um, health issues on people's ability to cope because it's not right that we ever do that well the, the, for anyone who's to be honest for anyone who's c-suite or anywhere near c-suite listening 
you know, my experience is that the Claire's comment about bandwidth is absolutely fundamental. So often um, I have seen leaders who aren't good at delegating, who as a result kill their own bandwidth to do whatever. But I've also seen on reorganizations and other things like that, and I would suggest that senior leaders think about this, if you have a leader who has got so much to do, they can't get it done. There's no bandwidth. So things will fall apart. If you've got a leader because the structure has been changed, who has 10 direct reports, you, know, you, you cannot work effectively as a leader giving time to 10 direct reports in a fast moving environment. If you look at the military, the military operate on something like a maximum of five or six direct reports because they've worked out that that is the limit of your bandwidth as a human being. Uh, so <clears throat> that, that I think is really, really key. On the delegation front, I would say to listeners, what I promise I will do is when I do my reflections uh, on the top from uh, for Claire in a week's time, I will give you a little two-minute delegation exercise that I promise you could save you half a working day a week because I haven't got time to do it now. We want to get more insights from Claire. Link to that. Given your success as a woman in organizations which are traditionally male-dominated, what would you say to a, a young woman about the potential challenges, but also potential for success uh, in a career in a, a male-dominated workplace? What do they have to do to get there to succeed? They have to be themselves, Chris. I'm sorry. It's back to my original point. I fell into the railway industry, had no idea that's what I would be doing. I remember um, Heathrow Express was the company I first started out with. And uh, I didn't even know it was a railway. I thought it was a coach company. I went saw this advert, didn't say it was trains, went for the interview, got offered this job as a customer service representative. And I was all excited about that. And we got started the business. And then they sent us all to be train driver assessments off to this assessment and I thought well I'll do the assessment but there's no way I'm driving a train it's just you know it's not why I've come here and out of the 12 of us only four of us passed this assessment and there were three guys and me and I said oh I'm not doing it and these all these other all these other people were saying but you've passed the assessment you've got the opportunity to drive a train so I don't want to drive a train I, I want to be a customer service representative so there's another guy and he'd been a chef and he'd just joined Heathrow Express. And he said to me, I don't really want to do it either. So there's two of us. And I said to him, look, if you do it, I'll do it. And he went, oh, OK, let's give it a go. Off we went. Now, I had no idea that in taking a step into that role, which was nothing like a traditional railway driver role, by the way, Heathrow Express recruited people for customer service. And it was an added skill on top. It wasn't the other way around. It was a brand new company, brand new standards. It was like an airline. So it wasn't the railway we might know today. I went into that with no understanding of what I was about to walk into in terms of an industry, which was very male dominated. So it didn't even cross my mind that it would be an issue. And I think because I just knew that it was exciting, I had an opportunity and I was going to give of my best. I just went straight into it, went for it. And that's how my career developed in the railway. Now, Moving from Heathrow into more traditional railways, I came across those barriers. I remember walking into a mess room when I was an operations manager for another company and I sat down with the, some drivers, all male, 
um, middle-aged white, I have to say. And I said to them, oh, I used to used to drive trains. And they looked at me and said, what, your little tr- train set? I said, no, a class 332. Um, and they said, what do you mean? And I said, yeah, I used, I used to drive trains. You know, I talked a bit about it. They softened. They relaxed. And then they said, all right. And then, do you want a cup of tea? And I thought, okay. Now, whether that's acceptable or not, we're humans and it's you're, you're breaking through barriers that have been there and it's all about people again. I was just myself, said what I did, built relationships with them, continue to just do things the way I would do them. Even when I come across, you know, board meetings with, with all men, me in there going, put the kettle on, Claire. All right, I'll go and put the kettle on. You buy me a drink after work. You know, you just... It's about being confident to just be brilliant. And I think my experience in the last few years, it's changed. It's changed quite considerably. Um, Inclusion is so, so important to me. And we need to create that to get the diversity in business. You need an environment where people feel safe and supported to want to come there. And then you open it up. And we're still in a very a backward place in the transport sector, I believe. I think we need people to feel that it's the place to be will bring the diversity and then it will just be irrelevant. For now, we're still on the journey. But for me, it's about confidence in yourself and your values and just be you. Don't (laughs) almost for me, it was laughing it off and then they become embarrassed and they're like, actually, I shouldn't have said that. And that was the way to cope, not be offended because I never took it that way. That's 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 amazing. Um, in fact, I think you are, you are you are probably the the first person on the series who who can actually is qualified to drive a train, which is the first. Well, I, I need. <laughs> <laughs> which is so. Do you cool. know what? When I told my amazing dad because um, he he used to run a pub down in Dorset, and I went down there in, when I was in my late twenties. I or just um, become uh, I passed out as a train driver. I was just about to. And he said to me, you never told me when you were growing up, Claire, that you wanted to be a train driver. And I said, I know I didn't, but look at me now. And <laughs> the village was so excited by the fact that they had a train driver, first point, and she was a girl and she was brought up in this tiny village. And it was just actually quite a lovely feeling. And I think that sort of sense of it's all a bit different, but everyone was so proud was really also helped me sort of get more confident and go into management leadership after that. That's that's a be- that's a beautiful story. Finally, then to anyone who is listening, um, perhaps first of all to anyone who is not a leader but just a colleague in a team, uh, what would you say they should do to be a better colleague to help their team be better? And then, if you're a leader, what's one thing you should say, or you would say that a leader should do better? You said it earlier. We're not perfect, and we all make mistakes. As a leader, vulnerability, authenticity and honesty are so important. Now, I'm not talking about divulging confidential things you can't talk about. I'm talking about being honest and upfront and telling people that you can't if you can't. But we need to be vulnerable to enable people to feel comfortable, to be themselves, and then you get of your best. It's so straightforward. No airs and graces in terms of I know it all. I'm at the top of this tree. I'm not. I need your help. That's my thing when I come into a new role as a leader. As a colleague, once again, identify. Identify people that need you. Talk, share, 
and just explore. I mean, there are so many people in my organization who have got amazing backgrounds. They didn't always work on the railway. And they, I bump into them and they tell me things about what they've done before and ideas they've got. And I just say, why don't you get together with this individual and, you know, form a little group or, you know, and it's just about make, make your working life as great as it can be um, and make it fun. That's what I would say. But Claire, that's so true. Enjoy your working life, make it fun. We, not me, and share with share with everybody. That's that's. Thank you so much. It's been uh, it's been amazing. Thank you uh, to our listeners. Um, I'm sure they'd like to thank you as as well. I thank uh, thank you on their behalf. And and also, I'd say to our listeners, don't forget that little point I made about next time you take public transport. Just have a little thought for how much uh, people in public transport have done for us all over COVID. Claire, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Some great insights and fun from Claire. Above all, I think it's the emphasis that she put on humanity in so many senses that was so powerful. Treating others with respect, sticking to your values, helping others grow and develop, understanding they make genuine mistakes and being who you really are. But from the leader's perspective, how that creates an environment where people want to give their best, where they do more than the job, where they're constantly looking out for ways to do things better. But she also focused on the simple practicalities for leaders to be able to do these things. They must have been given the basic skills and capabilities in the first place. And in reality, many just haven't. Just remind in my reflections that also that I will be giving you a simple exercise which you can use if you're a leader to enhance your delegation skills. So have a think about how you can use some of Claire's ideas to help you get to where you want to be. Certainly I'll be feeding some of them into my keynotes and masterclasses to help my audiences in the future. And don't forget that in a week I'll give you a more in-depth view of the key takeaways from Claire, my insights and three ideas for actions in my reflections on the top. If you have used any of the insights you've got from perspectives from the top and they've helped you, send me your success stories. I'd love to hear them. Also, don't forget to sign up on the website so you don't miss any of the great future guests we have coming up over the next year. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the show notes from today's episodes at perspectivesfromthetop.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from today's show, but all previous ones. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts so you don't miss any. And if you really enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating and review. Have a question or comment? Let's discuss it. Message me on LinkedIn. Perspectives from the Top is produced in collaboration with Detroit Podcast Studios. So have a successful week. Use today's new learnings and actions. And remember, it's onwards and upwards. See you next time on Perspectives from the Top.